Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm joined this week by Dr. Bradley Block, who is a ENT surgeon in private practice in Long Island, New York. And then he is also the host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, a very popular podcast that covers a variety of topics that we'll uh, certainly get more into in this podcast. So Brad, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Really uh, looking forward to it. Me too. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. So yeah, so I gave you a brief introduction, but maybe tell us a little bit about where you went to school, uh, where you did your residency, and then kind of about your your practice right now. So I I did un, uh, I did medical school at SUNY Buffalo, and then my residency at Georgetown, and then being originally from Long Island, I I moved back there. Ended up uh, you know ten minutes, five minutes from the mall, which is where I never thought I would be. There I am somewhere between the uh, orange Julius and the uh, Auntie Anne's pretzels is uh, my office. No, we're not actually in the mall, but uh, <laughs> we're, just, we're, just, we're just close by. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm one of those few people who is with the same practice that I joined out of residency. Um, and so my practice is ENT and Allergy Associates. If there are any ENTs out there, they probably know who we are. We are that big New York practice. And we are, we're the biggest ENT practice in the country. There are at this point, I think 250 of us wow. because we are in all five boroughs. We're all the way out to the Hamptons. We're like way up into Middletown, New York. We're, you know, into like the middle of New Jersey. We are, we have like 40 offices, so 250 doctors between the ENTs and the allergists. And, um, uh, and I, I don't know how many partners there are, but I think it's around close to 180. So 250 doctors, 180 partners. And the reason is because the thing that sets us apart from everyone else is there is a clear path to full equity partnership, which means if you join us, we will tell you what you need to do to become a full equity partner. And as long as you do it, you'll become a full equity partner. Like, no, no, it's it's a sweat equity. It's There's no buy-in. Um, and and then when I'm done and I'm retired, there's no buyout. I just just retire. So, um, you know, what wouldn't be a, like when I joined, I was like, oh, my God, what? Why would anyone not who's looking for private practice? Right. Why would anyone not join this practice? And now that I'm a partner in the practice, I haven't changed my thought because we're we're also we're physician run. 
We have an elected board. Certainly we have a C-suite of non-physicians who run the practice because everyone who's on the board, including the president, still sees patients full time. So you know those, those modules that you need to do, that the admi administration told you that you need to do? Well, well, they need to do it too, in addition to seeing all. So <laughs> if, it, if it's really you know worth it to cut down on our liability insurance or for whatever reason they have us doing these things, right? Like they're doing it too. And so when it's run by physicians, it really makes a difference because it's not just about the bottom line. It's not just about seeing as many patients as you can as long as you can, as many as you can squeeze in. It's about enjoying your job. So if they're miserable, they're not gonna wanna do it. So, sorry, I got I got my evangelist shoes on and I'm trying to sell my practice to all the ENTs out there who are listening. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I love it. And that's why I am still in the same exam rooms I'm in for the last 11 plus, yeah, 11 years. That's a great overview. And I mean, that sounds like the, the dream there for private practice that you get you know, an equity there and as, you know, a, a clear path to that, if you will. And I, I'm starting to learn about the arduous process of, of finding jobs. You know, I'm still a little bit of the way, a ways away from that. But from what I hear from my senior residents that are in that process right now, it's, it's more convoluted and complex than you may think. It's not as simple as, oh yeah, hey, you fill out this application for med school. Then, you know, though you, then you do this match, you do some interviews and it's all set. It's, jobs come as, as you know, very well and in all kinds of shapes and colors, uh, and you know, options to choose from. So that's, that's great. <laughs> Listen to podcasts on negotiating. Don't rely on the lawyer that you hire to negotiate because all they're going to do, the lawyers are going to do is they're going to go through your contract and be like, don't sign it because of X, Y, and Z. They're not ne there to negotiate for you. You have to negotiate first. And the sooner you start negotiating, the more leverage you have. So definitely listen to a couple of podcasts on, on, on negotiating as a physician, because there are a lot of, a lot of good ones out there. And also find out like, what is the path to, if you're, if you're joining private practice, like I want, eventually want to have full equity. How do I get there? How do I get there? Well, I founded this practice and it took me a lot of work. Well, great. Okay. How much is that worth to you? Right. Sure. How much do I need to do in order to to, to get there too. Well, you're never going to get there. Okay. At least you Bye. know. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so I, I, you know, cause I think there's that that's important, especially with everyone selling a private equity, right? You know, you get the rug pulled out from under, you want a seat at the table. You want a seat at the table. Yeah. And then I'm curious, that's happening a lot in radiology. And then my friends in Durham say that's happening. Is that happening in ENT as well these days? It is, it is, okay. it is, it is not happening to us. Oh. Um, just because we're so big um i mean we we've been we, we this is public information because we put out a press release because we started a bso which is a business service organization so we kind of spun off the management company from the practice and the reason that you would do that is because if you're if you're being approached by private equity but just because we're we're so big and there's such a big disparity between income from the people that you know don't want to work a ton, maybe don't want to see a ton of patients and the doctors that are seeing, you know, we, every weekend, every night, they're seeing a ton of patients, they're making a lot, they're making a lot of money. Um, and then the age difference, right? Someone, someone who just became a partner who's 40 and someone who's about to retire at 70, right? There's different skin in the game. And so how are you going to, how are you going to get everyone on board or enough people on board? You know, it's 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 it would be a big challenge. So yes, it's out there in otolaryngology, but from what I've seen, what private equity does is they 
they what they're telling people is, well, we can buy your practice and then cobble you together in order to save on economies of scale and also, you know, efficiency. And they'll they'll turn you into something that kind of maybe looks a little like us. So that's what the private private equity will turn you into us. We're already us. I, I don't know if they would even know what to do with us if they got if they got us because we're already, you know, we're 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 efficient and still growing and still growing. So we'll see we'll see where we go next. But um, yes, that is happening in otolaryngology. It's happening in the in the higher paying specialties. You know, that's what they're the the hospital systems are buying up internal medicine primary care practices because the primary care practices direct the patients so then they can direct them towards their specialists right there's not a lot of money to be made from internal medicine pediatrics but that's where the patients flow from so you want more patients to go to your imaging and labs and and inpatient services you start with your primary care those are the hospitals the private equity they just want the specialties that make the most money that's why it's you know gi derm ent radiology anesthesiology so you know that's um and then they just work through economies of scale and uh and then negotiating right they though if you're if you're in a 30-person practice versus a three-person practice, you have more leverage than insurance companies, you can get better rates. So those are the two better rates and economies of scale are, are how they um, how they accomplish that. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm curious from a, uh, I want to get into, uh, before we talk about the your podcast, is is just your clinical practice. Like what uh, like what type of patients do you typically see? I know ENT is a very broad field. Um, so maybe if there's certain areas within that that you tend to focus on, certain pathologies, patient types, uh, your split between surgery and clinic, if you will. Well, so, you know, one of the reasons for the podcast is when I was in training, we spent like half and half a day a week in office hours, you know, half a day a week in lectures. And then the other four days a week, we're in the operating room. I am now half a day a week in the operating room and the other four and a half days a week, I'm in office hours. So I see a ton of patients and I wasn't seeing them as efficiently as I thought I could due to the human elements. And so I thought, hey, how can I do this better? How can I make sure that I'm communicating what I need to communicate and still do it well so the patient leaves satisfied? Who's, what is this even called? It's called social engineering. So, so, so I didn't really answer your question. I'll answer your question first, which is, you know, what am I seeing? Well, I see kids, I see adults, I see like, tubes, tonsils, and adenoids, nosebleeds, and earwax, and ear infections. It's interesting. One of my first patients had came in for a sore throat, and I was, they were like, she said, my, you know, my throat hurts. How long does it hurt? Was, a day. I was like, a day? And you're seeing a specialist? Like, you know, having come from tertiary care at Georgetown, like, you've had a sore throat for a day, and you came to, like, why didn't you see your primary care physician? Or why did you even see anybody? Why don't you take some Motrin? And the patient's answer was like, you don't understand, Dr. Block. It really hurts. It's really bad. It's like, okay. That was my first introduction to private practice. So this is a lot of what we see in, in otolaryngology is actually what you would think they'd see in primary care, right? Sinus infections and ear infections, middle ear infections, external ear infections. So we, we, we see a lot of um, acute care. Um, and then the surgeries that I do, you know, tubes, tonsils, and adenoids, uh, 
you know, I still see a lot of dizziness. I actually really enjoy BPBV because we're like, a, we're like magicians when that, when that comes in. The patient's like, oh my God, and it's gone? Like that's all you needed to do was turn my heads a couple times and it's gone? Um, so yeah, so I see dizziness and hoarseness and then, you know, surgeries, the pediatric surgeries and then the, um, you know, septums and sinus surgery and sleep apnea surgery and voice surgery. I really, I gave up open surgery a little while ago, so I don't do like thyroids and parotids and submandibular glands anymore. And I never really did much, you know, I didn't do cancer surgery for, uh, uh, for that long. So I send that, you know, I'm, I'm in New York. I'm, I'm in, you know, the shadow of the city. There are these huge tertiary care hospitals that that's what they do all day long. So, you know, if I can't do it as well as them, I shouldn't be doing it. So I send that all, I send that all to them. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for giving us that overview. Um, so I'm curious, I want, I definitely want to get into your podcast and then, you know, from that where different, you know, topics you've covered and guests you've had and everything. So tell us, tell us about your podcast. What, how did you get into podcasting? You know, uh, was this something you, you know, had thought about doing for a long time or you just jumped right into it? And I guess what was kind of your initial guests and how has that evolved over time? So what I was looking for was social engineering, right? Like, engineering the interaction that we're having and what i found with social engineering was most of it was for like sales or dating right this is where all the experts who have written books are going to talk about they're not talking about the physician patient interaction even though you know this it, it, it could still apply to that right how to get someone to like you in 60 seconds or less well that applies to the patient direction. We're with them for such a short period of time. We want them to like us, right? We want them to like us because then they trust us and then we can, they're more apt to listening to what we have to say and remembering what we say. If they think you're a jerk, they're going to shut down. They're not going to remember. They're not going to listen. Uh, so you, you just, you have to, you know, those, that, that stuff is important. That's important if you want to accomplish what you accomplished is you want them to get better. That, that relationship is so is so important. So it's so easy to burn a bridge. So so I was looking for a podcast out there where I could learn that and it didn't exist and it didn't exist. And so this was, you know, five, you know, a little less than five years ago now that I started. So I'm, you know, 230 or 40 episodes in. I started off being every other week and then I got so much that I wanted to accomplish that it became every week. Um, and I started off similar to you. You know, we have a network of experts. You know, we were at the top of our class in high school and college. And so what are our what happened to our classmates? Well, they all became captains of industry and experts in their <laughs> own areas. And so so we have access to all these experts at our fingertips. And so that's who I started with. I started with my colleagues. Um, I started with my friends, my peers, and then moved on beyond that. And you'd be surprised how often, and this is one of the reasons to have a podcast, is because you get to call up strangers and be like, I've got some questions for you. And they will answer you much of the time, more, more often than you would think. Um, I mean, some people have a big barrier and they're like, you know what? You don't get enough downloads. I don't have time for you. And I understand that. Uh, but, but a lot of times you can just call up a stranger who's the world's expert in something or other. And they'll be like, sure. Oh my goodness. Thanks for reaching out to me. Thanks so much for doing that. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to be on your show. And the rest is history. So it started off as I, I wanted to focus much most on the, engineering that interaction to be as efficient as possible but the topics have really exploded from there and it really just became as i say in the show everything we should have been learning 
while we were memorizing Krebs cycle from, you know, device development to what it's like to be sued to um, talking to patients about their weight in an effective way, you know, developing good, getting to patients to develop good habits, the science behind good habits, personal finance, which everyone loves to talk about. Um, so, you know, I've run health policy, advocacy, and then every so often I'll have a specialist on to talk about their specialist because as an otolaryngologist, I wish people would stop telling people that they have post-nasal drip and they, that Flonase would fix their cough because that is a complete misunderstanding of respiratory physiology. That's not how it works at all. So please stop telling people that. So I would imagine if I feel so strongly about post-nasal drip, well, then my my colleague, the interventional radiologist or ophthalmologist or gastroenterologist, you know what? They're going to want their fellow physician to know a few things too. And so, you know, every so often I'll have a specialist on the show to talk about their, their specialty. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think even among physicians, we don't always all understand. I mean, obviously I know the basics of what ear, nose and throat does, but even I've even learned a little bit more about your specialty, just hearing you, you talk in the last, you know, 20 minutes or so about, you know, your practice and, and the patient populations you see. So, and, I, and especially our, our field of interventional radiology is, as you know, like, it's it's still not very well understood by many most yeah, a, most most physicians. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's no, I think that's that's really interesting. And then going into, you know, like you said, like with my podcast, we were talking about when you interviewed me. It's it's you know these you start with kind of a core uh, you know set of topics. It's which it sounds like you did, and then really you can kind of go anywhere you want, which is which is pretty cool. And and you've definitely done that on yours, which. I think it's great. It's, it's really is the, the complete physician's guide. I mean, you really, you, you cover a, a wide variety of things that really are applied to any physician. You don't have to just be a ENT or some specialist. It's, it's really, yeah, that's what I try. I try to make it as broadly appealing to really practicing physicians as, as possible, right? Like, is there a topic out there that most physicians it's going to, and it, you know, you're not going to hit everybody every time. Sometimes it's just for private practice and sometimes it's just for, people interested in doing research. And sometimes it's people, you know, so you're never going to hit everybody all the time, but I try to really cover as what, and as long, as long as it's interesting to me. So my own personal interest right now is I'm trying to get into uh, medical legal consulting. And so I've had a bunch of people on my show whose expertise is in medical legal consulting. So, you know, I generally just interview stuff that I'm interested in, but I'd be happy to hear from listeners as well. You know, I'm happy to, and I've had people suggest people to be on the show and I've had them on the show. So I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that mostly uh, as well. Yeah. It's funny you say that as, as podcasters, our, our goal or, our, or at least our, alt the altruistic side of us wants to provide the best, you know, show to our audience or the best content, but we, you know, what people don't realize, and I know, you know, this Brad is from podcasting. It's, it's a, like you were saying, it's a great way to reach people that you otherwise would have no access to whatsoever. Probably. I mean, it, especially in my shoes as a resident, <laughs> um, you know, there's, you know, I've gotten to talk to people that are, you know, leagues beyond where I'm at in their career. And it's, and uh, it's really, you know, just a great way to get them on. And and like you said, you'd be very surprised who will, who will actually say yes to you. It's it, at least, uh, you know, in my experience, it's been most people say yes. I've had very few either just say no, or, you know, usually they don't say no, they just don't respond. But yeah. like you said, that's the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to the point where sometimes when they don't respond, I'm like, huh, really, really, <laughs> after so many people have uh, <laughs> have responded, and so cordially, too. Yeah, no, it shows some a little bit about some people. It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, you, you know, you have some people that are 
very, very famous and, you know, whatever, or done these amazing things. And like you said, they're, they're very cordial and they're, they respond right away and they, they're so grateful for the opportunity. And then you meet, you try to get someone who also has, you know, done some, some big things, but maybe not quite to the level of, of some of your biggest name guests and they totally blow you off. And it's just kind of interesting to see that. <laughs> think, who do you think you are? Yeah. It's hard not to think that. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, you know, I always like to ask this for physician podcasters is how do you think, and I think you've touched on this already a little bit, but how do you think your practice and your podcast enhance each other? Like how does podcasting make you a better doctor? And then how do you think being a doctor has helped you be a better podcast host? Well, it really only goes in one direction. I don't think being a doctor has helped me be a podcast host other than the fact that like, if it wasn't for my profession, because this, you know, the, the whole point of the podcast is to help me be a be better doctor. Like, that's why I, that's why I started it. Um, but being a doctor, I don't think, I mean, I guess, you know, our ability to interview people and listen, but I, I actually, I think my skills got better from, from the podcast itself. So how has my podcast helped me be a better doctor? Really? That's what the show was for. That's what the show and, and still is for in, in, in many ways, because I still cover the topic from time to time of the doctor patient interaction, right? So it, it helps me connect with my patients and it helps me do so efficiently, right? It's not just about listen to your patients. If you'd only listen to your patients, just listen to your patients, right? I'm tired of that. Just listen. Okay, I'm listening. And yet every so often they'll say, doctor, you're not listening, right? So just listening isn't, it's not about that. It's it's about it's about actually being present because they can tell if you're just like mm-hmm, 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 versus like you're actively engaged in what you're saying and you're trying to be there with them with their complaint and put yourself in their shoes and try and figure out what their experience has been, try and figure out what their pain point is, trying to figure out what it is that they're really worried about, you know? And so that that allows, you know, through learning from people that have expertise in this, whether it's specific to the doctor patient relationship or not, you know, they have expertise in talking to other people. Um, you know, it's the parallel is like my wife, my wife will go to a cocktail party and everybody in the room will think that she is their best friend because she just like floats from person to person to person engaging with everyone genuinely interested in what they have to say i mean she's so good like her emotional intelligence is just through the roof whereas i'm the one with a scowl on my face and a drink in my hand because i don't want to talk to anyone and what it took me a long time to figure out is i don't want to talk to anyone because i'm not good at it and i'm still not good at it it still takes work for me to be like i'm trying to figure out what the right thing is to say. Instead of just knowing intuitively, I'm always trying to think about, okay, let me ask this person a follow-up question about themselves so I don't just talk about myself the whole time. Like, And so, you know, I kind of lost my train of thought there. I apologize, but, um, you know. All good. But this stuff, this stuff is all, it's all learned and it's all take and it all takes practice. And, the, you know, the better I get at it in those social situations, the better I'm at, with my patients and the, the more satisfied they are, the more likely they are there to refer their friends, the more likely they are to not sue me, the more likely they are to, you know, take my recommendations and follow up with me again and bring their family members. So, and then I enjoy it more. I enjoy it more because I'm better at it. I enjoy it more because it comes more easily. I enjoy it more because the patients leave 
satisfied or they tell me, oh my goodness, you're the fourth doctor I've seen and you're really, you're the first person that's really understood my problem. And it's not like I'm doing anything profound. You know, it's just little tips, little tricks here and there that I've picked up from 240 episodes or how many of talking to people who are really good at this. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And we, we don't really learn that in medical school. I mean, sure, they do like those, especially nowadays, those simulations and things like that. And the, you know, the actors that come in and portray, you know, different conditions and things like that. But, but, it's but not no, an no one teaches process. you. It's not an iterative process. Nobody was sitting there, you know, recording you and then showing your own recording. Max, this is why you looked awkward. And this is why it made the patient uncomfortable. And this is what you said. And this is what you could have said differently. And when the patient did this, you you could have said that instead. Like, it's not iterative the way that they do it, where you're like learning and honing. And and the person that's watching you do it is just, you know, they're, they're a practicing doctor. They're just trying to do the best they can, what, what they're equipped with. I don't claim to be the, the best at this. And that's why I have the people on my show so that I can learn from them and get better at it. But if we could incorporate this stuff into our training in lieu of all of the garbage we <laughs> never, ever use again, you know, like it's important. Yes, the, what separates us from the physician's assistants are that we have a, a, a broader foundation of the basic sciences and but they learn, they have a ton of clinical experience and they learn a lot of practical stuff, right? Just because, uh, okay, so I'm going to, sorry, I'm going off on all these <laughs> tangents, but a long time ago, I had Nathan Lentz on the show, who was an evolutionary biologist who wrote a book about how flawed the human body is. Like the fact that we're the only mammal who doesn't produce vitamin C because there are so many hits to our vitamin C producing enzyme that it can't, doesn't work anymore. And, and that happened because we were living in a place that we were consuming enough vitamin C that we didn't need it. So it just got so many mutations to it. It doesn't work anymore, right? Like the human body is cobbled together with all of these things that were originally designed to do other things, you know, like wings in bats and wings in birds. They all, they both start off as hands, you know, like our wrist makes no sense. It's like nine different rocks that are just like stuck together <laughs> that each on their own, like barely move. If you're going to build a wrist, you wouldn't build it this way. And medical school is the same thing. It's just cobbled on top of each other. Like it's really hard to purge something from the system. All we do is we keep on adding more and adding more. If we were to burn it all down and start from scratch, I would hope we would be including all of these things about the human interaction that gets you to connect with your patients and get them to trust you and get them to like you and get them to tell you what it is that's really bothering them. Like it's, it's all, yeah, I'm not doing complex head and neck cancer surgery. I'm not doing laryngectomies and neck dissections and free flaps, but I'm still helping my patients every day because I'm getting a lot of those patients that are like, I've seen four different doctors and nobody's, you know, listened to me and nobody's because I've just become through practice and through interest better at, better at that. Sure. No, that's key. I think that's, you know, gaining our patients' trust and, and not, it's not just about them liking you. Obviously you want a patient to like you, but I think getting them to trust you and feel comfortable about what you're, you know, what you're assessing with that, what your assessment is, what your plan is, and, you know, them feeling good about that and comfortable about that, I think is, is extremely important. I think you, you definitely notice when a patient doesn't feel comfortable about it or, or questions it versus when they do, it's, it's a dramatic, you know, difference, if you will. 
and then you don't like it. <laughs> you don't enjoy that visit when the patient gets all bristly. Mm-hmm, then you're dead. Mm-hmm. Your dander is up and you get defensive, right? And then you leave there like like all fired up and charged up and like, <laughs> oh, like that's not enjoyable. Like you're not going to like your job if that happens a lot. So the more you can cut down on it, not just for the patient's sake, but for your own sake. Absolutely. Burnout a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, burnout's going to happen a lot faster if each of those interaction, your cortisol's up because you're like, you know, you just get your, your, your fists are clenched. For sure. Yeah. And I think I, th- I want to segue here a little bit because it, it has to do with a conversation we were having before we started recording. But, you know, like you said, you're trying to focus more on medical malpractice and kind of some of the legal aspects of practicing. And we were talking about how if patients like you, they they probably are less likely, at least initially, to, su- to sue you. And, and you know, we were, you know, you were getting into some of the the more details of that. So I'm curious what, what some of the kind of the biggest things you you've, you know, learned about those aspects of practicing from your podcast guests and, and what are kind of some of the big, I guess, takeaway messages, if you will. And, uh, we, we, you know, we can certainly point people to certain episodes, but I'm curious from, from your take, since you've had the experience of interviewing a variety of people in that, in that regard. Well, there's two different areas here and I'm not sure which, which place you want me to take it, which is like, one is actually taking cases and being a medical legal consultant, which um, I haven't done yet. I've had a bunch of people on my show that that taught me how to get into it, and I haven't gotten any cases yet. So I can't talk about that. But what I can talk about is getting sued. Sure. Because I've had a bunch of guests talk about litigation, deposition, um, adverse outcomes. And I've actually talked to I talked to medical students about that. We have, uh, you know, we have a medical school near me, and so I, I, I talked to the scared the pants off of the <laughs> graduating medical school. You know, they're about to go into residency, and then I get up there and talk to them about, you know, you're gonna get sued. I'm the first person to tell you this. You're gonna get sued, and uh, it's important to recognize that it. You, you can't really think. Well, if I get sued, you have to think when I get sued. If you're one of the few to go through the system unscathed, consider yourself lucky. Um, But you just have to anticipate and it'll help you when it does happen. If you just think, you know what, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's going to happen. Because if you practice enough medicine, you're going to have adverse outcomes. And the way that the lawyers think about it is it's not, oh man, this doctor wasn't practicing good medicine. They think of it more from this person had a particularly adverse outcome. And I think I might be able to get the plaintiff to settle because then we're going to make money. Not, am I protecting these vulnerable patients from bad doctors? No. Can I make money from this? So either it's going to be a particularly adverse outcome that's going to play well with a jury. So then they're, you know, your, your insurance might even, you might have a hammer clause where the, the, the malpractice insurance makes you you know, take the direction that they want to take it. Um, and then, you know, and then you lose or, or you have to settle. But but that's what it comes down to. Not was the, the play the, the attorneys are not thinking, was this person a good or a bad doctor? They don't know. They don't care. They're gamblers. They just want to think, can I make money from this? Either because, you know, I can convince the jury that this doctor did the wrong thing, or I can convince the jury that it's such a bad outcome that they really should side or Am I going to be able to convince them to settle um, because they won't want to gamble on a jury trial? So it's not about whether you're a good doctor. Certainly, the better medicine you practice, the less likely it is to be. The more your patients likely that like you, 
the the less likely it's going to it's going to happen or the less frequently it's going to happen but it's also contingent on what specialty you're in like emergency medicine doctors neurosurgeons obgyns you know they get and and then if you're practicing high stakes surgery again it's those real adverse outcomes that are more likely like pe pediatricians get sued the least frequently but when it goes to trial they because it's children that tends to be uh, the rewards are, are the highest for the uh, for the plaintiff. So, you know, all this stuff is stuff that you need to recognize as a practicing physician. You need to reframe the way you're thinking of it. And you don't know. You look to your left. You look to your right. What, what are your colleagues? They're probably not talking about it. They're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about it when you get sued. The, it really works to the advantage of the of the plaintiff's attorney because you're so isolated when you get sued. You're so isolated from your colleagues. You're not allowed to talk about it because if you do, they're going to say, who did you talk to about this? Oh, I talked to my partner. Then they're going to depose your partner. What did he tell you? What did what did she tell you What about what happened? What's your recollection, right? Because they're they're going to, and they, they, you know, it'll be a, a day off from work for them. It'll be traumatized, you know, it's because they can. Um, and it's not about their, their moral, the plaintiff's attorney, they, they say it's inpatient protection, but it's a business. It's a game. It's gambling. It's not about you. Don't take it personally. Um, and the, really the villains in all of this, the real villains are the expert witnesses, are the medical expert witnesses that are willing to take baloney cases that they know the doctor practiced good medicine but they're able to spin it in such a way to make the doctor look bad because they get paid generously for it. They're really the villains in it. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing uh, plaintiff's work. I, I actually think that we should. I think there's a role for it. Like nobody can police. The police can't police themselves. Doctors can't police ourselves. No profession is good at policing themselves. So there, there needs to be some accountability there. You got to be able to sleep that night knowing that what you were doing as the malpractice, you know, plaintiff expert, you're really, you're really doing the, the right thing. You really put yourself in the other physician's shoes and what they were doing. Cause there, but yeah, there are bad actors out there. There are bad actors out there. And so there is a role for it, but you know, sure. The, the, the system gets abused. Yeah, definitely. And I think what I've realized is a lot of these physicians, there are these attorneys out there, Many people don't realize, well, they think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's only my wealthy patients that'll sue me because, you know, lawyers are really expensive. I don't think that's true. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, because a lot of these attorneys from what I understand out there, they, no, they don't they, get, they don't they, get paid. They they work they off only if they win. A settlement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Only if they win. Yes. Yes. No, it's not wealthy patients that are uh, more likely to sue. I'm actually, I don't know the statistics about that. Maybe they are. Maybe the wealthy are more entitled. And so if something bad happens to them, they're, they're more able to take advantage of the legal system just because they have more access. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But the way that the uh, malpractice attorneys make money is through jury trials and settlements. If it doesn't go to trial, they just wasted all their time. Or if it or if it doesn't settle or go to trial and they win, you know, it could it could this could be months, years, years. This stuff drags on for years. It could be years of work for the plaintiff's attorney and the defense attorney and you as the physician being dragged through the mud, made to feel at each level that you're awful. Not only are you an awful doctor who didn't take care of your patients, but you are an awful person. 
because if they only liked you more, they wouldn't have sued you, right? And and the plaintiff's attorneys can take your own guilt and they're going to twist the knife and they're going to use it to their advantage because they know you already feel badly about it. Well, doctor, don't you know that? Shouldn't you have done this? Couldn't you have done this? Like if you'd only, you know, they're not going to say that, but they're going to make it so that they're going to make you just feel awful and drag you through the mud, drag your reputation through the mud. You may develop anxiety. You may develop um, depression. There are cases of physicians who we've lost to suicide specifically because of a malpractice case, because they had an adverse outcome, got sued for it, and they just, you know, put them, put them, put them over the edge. Um, but getting back to your question, yes, they only get paid if they win. Yeah, and I think I think that's also another interesting point you made. You know, we recently we have a residency retreat every year, as I'm sure a lot of residency programs do. And some of our attendings actually very frankly talked about this issue with us, which is, you know, getting sued, which both happens in the IR world and in the diagnostic radiology world a lot, believe it or not, um, because, you know, a lot of times our calls on these reads are are used to direct management. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes things get missed and and things like that. So uh, we had a variety of, of viewpoints from some of our attendings who were you know, we were lucky to have them be very brutally honest with us about some of the the issues or some of the cases they had to deal with or that they were aware of. And so what what one of the biggest things that struck me was is that, you know, often these cases don't happen and for like year they can happen years after you've, you know, you know, sure you can remember a case from a week ago or a month ago, but like, you know, you're getting sued about something that happened three or four years ago because again, like you were talking about, it takes a while for them to identify this as a case and then build a case and then actually come after you and, you know, build that even further, I guess, you know, what's been your, your, I guess, feeling on that. And then your, what you've learned from your, your guests on that. And then I guess what has been your kind of lessons taken from like how to deal with this? Cause you said it's, it's in my, the attendings who spoke with us said the same thing. It's a very difficult thing to deal with. Cause it's, it's really hard to talk to anybody about it. Yeah. Um, so one, really what your question is, what's the statute of limitations? And that varies for, for, for injury, right? Like in New York, I think they, I'm not sure if the law passed or not, but they were talking about expanding the statute of limitations for cancer cases. So if you like, you miss a cancer diagnosis, they can sue you up to like seven years after that. Um, for OBGYN, I think it's until the kid is an adult. So you know, if there's an injury to a kid and it manifests at 17 years old, they can still sue you until the kid is 18. So I think the 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 uh, statute of limitations depends on the specialty and depends on the state. So that can really vary pretty widely. Um, you know, I don't think it's forever, but, you know, it could be, yes, you wouldn't get sued. You know, you, you found out that you got sued about something that happened a long time ago. And, and then the next question is, how do you get past it? So the, how do you how do you continue to practice? Right. How do you continue to see patients uh, while while going through this? And, and one is you can talk to a therapist about it, right? Because that's privileged information. That privileged information. That's not um, because, you know, one of the things is, is it admissible? Is it discoverable is the term that the, the lawyers use, right? And so it's not discoverable if you're talking to your therapist about it. I think in many cases you can talk to a spouse about it. Uh, and then you can talk to your par pa partners about it without being specific. And I think that's important. So don't talk about the case, but you can talk about how the case is affecting you. You got to talk. It needs air. 
it needs air. And so the more air you can give it, the better. So talk to your friends without using specifics so they won't be deposed. Talk to your colleagues without being specifics, using specifics so they don't be deposed. And then, you know, a therapist, the more, the more air you can give it, the better. Yeah. I think that's, that's great advice. You know, um, you know, finding the right people to talk to about it for sure. I think, like you said, you can't keep, I imagine that's where we, like you were talking about, where we see some of these, these bad outcomes for some physicians, whether it be, you know, affecting their practice, their confidence. And, you know, even like you said, unfortunately we've lost some people to this. Um, so your family brings it, it's, uh, there's something called second victim syndrome. And we talked about that in, in, in one of my interviews with, uh, her name is Stacia Dearman and she lost a patient. She was a pediatric ER physician and lost a patient. And, you know, you can imagine how something like that would affect you. And then she ended up being, you know, there was litigation that, that, that followed. Second victim syndrome is where you're affected by it. You're, you know, you're not the one that had the injury, but you're the second victim. It affects you. It affects then your family and your practice. And so you first need to acknowledge that something like that is happening and then, you know, get, get help because the, your family can, you know, you, you develop a mood disorder. It's going to affect how you interact with your family. So yeah, it's really, it's really important to, to give that as much air as you can. Interesting. Interesting. I guess, you know, what I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've, you've asked, you've interviewed a variety of guests on your, on your podcast, I guess, which ones have you either enjoyed the most or have you, you've learned the most from, I guess is, would be my question to you on, on looking back on your podcast after doing all these interviews. So two of my favorites would be Scott Dickers who founded the onion. So we talked about how to be funny. Um, I think he wrote three books, how to be funny, how to be funnier and how to be funniest. Uh, and then the other was BJ Fogg, who is, is, is behavioral scientist at Stanford PhD, who does a lot of research on habits. So that allows me to talk to patients about habits, you know, cause we were talk about, you should eat better and exercise more. Great. How, <laughs> you know, like, how do you get people to actually accomplish those things? We don't like, you know, they talk, people love to trash doctors and be like, you don't get any nutritional training. Really? What nutritional do I training do I really need? to know that people should be eating fewer cookies and more salads. Like, like really? Like, because when you're talking to people about behavior modification and habit development, what really works? And so, you know, the, he's got a whole model. You gotta, you know, you gotta either read the book or listen to the episode, but what it comes down to is you can't get people to do something that they don't want to do. If they don't like exercise, you're not going to get them to exercise. But if they like tennis, you can get them to play tennis. This, the, the, the barrier is finding a time in their schedule because once they find a time for it, then they'll continue doing it. The barrier is, you know, he talks about um, behavior is, is motivation and I think access and then a prompt or, um, and then, so how motivated or if you're really motivated, but it's hard to do. So there's like not much access then you might do it, but then you need a prompt to remind you to do it. So that's, that's the basics of it. But, but the short answer is you're only going to get people to do what they already want to do. You're only going to get them to eat foods that they like to eat. You're not going to get them to eat foods that they don't like to eat. So maybe, you know, help them find those foods that they like to eat that are 
you know, and then there's no good and bad. I did another interview about um, how to talk to people about their weight. And we talked, there are no good foods and no bad foods, right? They're only bad foods or foods that taste bad, foods that have gone bad or foods that are poisonous. Don't eat those, but everything else is not bad. But, but still, you know, things that they can eat in larger quantities without being concerned about it. So, you know, help them to make that easier to get to, right? Like, all right, have sliced apples in your fridge all the time. So Sunday will be your prep day where you slice all your apples, eat as many apples as you want, right? So, so getting people to do what they already want to do, right? That's, that's one thing for, for habit development, the real basic. And then for Scott Dickers, the how to be funny, there's a, a good rule, which is the purpose of humor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so, you know, the, the person who's incredible at this, and I wish I could have him on the podcast, is um, uh, William Flannery, otherwise known as Glockum Flecken or however you yeah. pronounce that, <laughs> ophthalmologic yeah. disorder. The yeah. comedian ophthalmologist, he is amazing at never punching down. He always punches up. Right. He's teasing different specialties about their quirks. He's teasing the healthcare system. He's teasing the EMR. He's teasing health insurance companies. So he's always punching up and he's never, ever, ever punching down. And so that's really important with humor, particularly in our field. But I think really it applies everywhere. Um, if you want to joke around with our patients, you know, always punch up, never punch down. You can never make fun of your patients. You can never make fun of what they're going through, you know. You know, Doc, is this going to hurt? Well, it's not going to hurt me. Like, that's not funny because they're really mm -hmm. nervous about the fact that it might hurt. Like, that's punching down. That's not okay. So, um, you know, it's important to uh, also humor is an iterative process. You find some things that you've said that haven't been funny. You know, it's easy to save a joke. That's something else he said. It's easy when you're a doctor to save a joke. Oh, you know what? I'll stick with uh, I'll stick with doctoring. I won't uh, won't won't try my hand. Um, in fact, with a patient today, she said something that I uh, found found something that I said really funny. So I, I found it a good time to leave the room. I was like, thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your server. <laughs> and then she, you know, now she's going to go home. She's going to tell all of her friends about me, how amazing I am and how funny I am. Even if I did, you know, very, if I took out some earwax, which is, you know, what I spend a lot of my day doing, you know, I do five years of a residency program doing microvascular free flap surgery. And now I'm taking out earwax most of the time. But, uh, um, she's going to go home and become one of my evangelists and go to, you know, Rockville Center or Oceanside or whatever town in Long Island parents and then be like, oh, you've got to go see Dr. Block. He's the best, even though like I didn't do much. But you know what? I made her laugh. We had a good time. That's great. That's great. Um, I guess as we close out here, you know, we're both physician podcasters. We've both each, you know, obviously interacted and interviewed other physician podcasters. I'm curious, you know, what has been kind of your, your infrastructure and what's your advice for, you know, physicians? Cause I, I get asked as I'm sure you do, but you know, what's that, what's involved in that? Like people, you know, they, some people think it's this much more complicated thing than it really is. It's, I guess what I'm curious what you, what you tell people, what I tell people is that it's, it's not hard to start it. It's just a lot of hard work. <laughs> um, so it's a little different for me. Um, I don't, I don't have a team. You know, I, you know, we have a common uh, colleague, Aaron Fritz, uh, the back table. I interviewed him on my show a while ago, uh, where like about team building, about building his team, because that's something that I still haven't done. I've outsourced my podcast, so I, I've never edited it. I've always outsourced that to someone else. Um, and so, but I haven't like 
you know, hired someone and then they're going to do this and then hired someone else and they're going to do that. So I don't, don't ask me about that because I have not done that well. I've just thrown money at it. But initially my podcast editor was one of our friends um, who I actually had on the show recently because she's a voiceover artist. So we talked about ways to use your voice. Like what's the best way when you're talking to patients, when you're giving a talk, when you're on a podcast to make sure that you're using your voice optimally. So we, so we talked about that, but since she does that, she was my initial editor and that helped me. That was the big pain point. Like I didn't know how to edit an episode and I was never going to learn that so that she did that. And then I eventually found a company to do that once she, you know, she did that for a long time and I appreciate it, but eventually it was, it was, it was a lot to ask of somebody. So then I outsourced it and now I've outsourced it to another company who actually does my, they do my social media, they've started my YouTube channel and they're helping me to really uh, get my voice out there, but it's not cheap. You know, it's the, the, the advantage of being an attending is I have more disposable income. And so I can, you know, throw money at that problem. Cause for me, you know, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to edit an episode. No, I'll just see five more patients. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for me to put my energy to, to, to doing that. I mean, I know some people that, that do it and they love it. It's gotten them to be better podcasters cause they don't say um as much cause they don't want to sit there and edit all of them out but it just didn't, it didn't make sense for me. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't emulate my, my method for doing it. No, I think you make a good point though. I mean, our spare time, no matter where you are in training, whether you're a med student or resident attending, we only have so much free time. And I mean, it's how, you know, what you want to do with that free time is so critical. And I think, you know, especially at the attending stage or, you know, obviously you can afford it a little bit easier to outsource some things. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, it also makes you, I mean, if you're backlogged in all these episodes because you need to edit them, you know, you may only you may not put out episodes as often as you want to because you have to spend all this time editing them versus when you could just be setting up more interviews. Yeah, I have a three, a five and a six year old that are going to be knocking down my door if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm sitting there editing podcasts and a wife who's going to want to murder me because I'm not, you know, I'm not attending to my responsibilities. Plus, I want to hang out with them. I actually want to hang out with them. My kids, my wife, you know, I love them and I love hanging out with them. So why would I want to sit there and and doing it? And actually, one of my interviews with Marjorie Stiegler, another physician podcaster and, and entrepreneur, she says physicians are short on time, but high on income. And this is, you know, this applies more to attending than it does to, re- to residents. So the more that you can outsource, the better. If you do it because you enjoy it, then fine. But if you don't enjoy it, outsource it outsource it because then you could, you know, if you'd rather just interview more people, then interview more people, then do two episodes a week and don't waste your time editing. And then you'll probably get more downloads and you'll get more popular and then you'll get more ads and then, you you know, it'll eventually pay for itself. Sure. Sure. Or not. <laughs> so my last question I ask everybody, and you touched on this a little bit is, so what do you do when you're not podcasting or practicing ENT? How do you find that balance if there is one? So there is no balance. There is no balance. That's a, that's a farce. It's a, you know, it's a seesaw. Um, and, and you're never going to be in the middle, you know, you're going to have to, sometimes you're going to have to concentrate more on your practice. And sometimes you have to concentrate more on your podcast. And sometimes you have to concentrate more on your family. But, but the, 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 the idea of balance is, is a farce. It's always in constant flux. And it's just important to recognize what your priorities are at a given time. You know, my kids are small, my kids are small, three, five, and six. And so we don't, um, one of my partners 
recently said to me, he's like, you thought you have them till they're 18. You don't. You have them till they're 12. Once they're 12, they lock themselves in their room. They're doing their homework. They're playing their friend, with their friends. They're doing their sports, but they're not hanging out with you anymore. You don't have them till they're 18. You have them till they're 12. So enjoy them while you can. And I am enjoying them while I can. Like I do, um, I do work out um on the weekends and sometimes in the mornings a little bit like while <laughs> while they're around like you know i do a little bit of something um but in terms of uh, hobbies you know the podcast is it and you know i used to surf we ski sometimes i'm hoping to get my boys i've, I've i don't have girls so when i refer to the boys it's all of my children um you know i'm hoping to get my my, my wife and i were just talking about this summer like you know Getting surf instruct, getting a surf instructor to get the boys up on surfboards. Like I, I would love to be able to surf with them, um, and we're going to teach them skiing this winter. But it all revolves around my family right now. Like I, yes, I have an hour on Saturday and an hour on Sunday where I get to work out by myself. Everybody knows that that is my time, and that's it. But that's that's it. You know, I, I don't have other pursuits that I'm look that I'm that I'm doing other hobbies that I'm doing right now. I don't play tennis. I don't play golf. I don't play pickleball. Um, it all really revolves around my children. And that's fine because that's not going to be forever. You know, as they get older, they're going to get more occupied and I'm going to have more free time. But I'm 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 enjoying them. At least I'm paying lip service to enjoying them. I certainly, you know. It's, I don't want to make it seem like I'm the model father. I'm, you know, that, that they, they get nothing but oodles of attention and love from me. It's also an iterative process. Parenting is an iterative process, but you know, I, I don't, that's the balance right now is I don't have much else that I do and that's not going to be forever. Sure. No, that's, that's plenty right there. Um, yeah, no, that's great. And Thanks again for uh, taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to come on with us. I guess last thing, where where can people find you and and connect with you? You know, where can people find the podcast and find and you know any platforms you're you're big on? We want to make sure we plug those as well. I appreciate that very much. So, the you know the podcast is Physicians Guide to Doctoring. You can find that. You just go to physiciansguidedoctoring.com and then you can find the links to different podcast players there, or you can just look up Physicians Guide to Doctoring on any podcast player and I'm there. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, which is just the podcast, kind of like this interview. Um, we're recording the video. I just throw that up on on YouTube as well. So you can look that up. And, and then I might actually have a YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. You have to look up Physicians Guide to Doctoring. You told me yours for the Da Vinci Academy. And it made me think that I might actually have a landing page on YouTube that isn't a number of random letters in a row. Uh, I should probably find that out. Um, and on Twitter for however long Twitter lasts now, uh, I'm at Physicians Guide on Instagram. I'm at Physicians Guide. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Bradley B. Block. And um, I'm not on Etsy yet. I'm not on Pinterest. I'm not on TikTok. Uh, I think that's, I think that's everything. That, that's, that's plenty right there. <laughs> uh, well, Brad, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Max. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. 
please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.